Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper and high school coach, current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Sanko for The Pistons. <laughs> this is the first time I messed up the intro. It's just like the beginning. All right, we got to do it again. Wait, no, 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 no. We got to leave this in because I want uh, everybody to hear that they you couldn't even do your intro for what? Like... This is a, I'm Amari Sankofa the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press, and that's it. I said Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. I don't know what I was going to say before. I guess you know. I, sh- I, I thought it was autopilot by now. Uh, this is what episode fifty-eight. Yeah, no, it's not. I still got to practice it. That's funny you say that, Amari, because I still read it word for word off of the outline every single time, just because I don't. I feel like I should have it memorized, but I don't. I just feel like you were definitely going to throw in some Michigan State stuff there because of the big weekend your boys uh, had. But that was the thing. I thought about it too hard. I was just going to dive in. And I, I don't read off of it. I'll just say, yeah, and I'm Maury Senko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And I was going to toss in some Michigan State stuff. Anyway, I'm going to go my intro. We're just going to leave it in. Uh, no, we're leaving it in because uh, <laughs> this, I want everybody to know why yours isn't longer. So I know, Wes, you had the you had your notes. Wes always takes notes for when we mess up. Wes, scratch that one out. I am not editing that part out. I am leaving <laughs> it in. And, of course, we're always blessed to be joined by Wes Davenport, our amazing producer, the man behind all of this that makes it run, and Omari. We finally, we finally get to announce something that has been in the works for a minute now. Right, I'm coming. Fast forward real quick before we, okay. before we go full blast around. I do have to shout out Michigan State, uh, Sweet 16. I feel like this was a, I feel like this was the final 14 money back in January. I didn't, I didn't did stand on it because it's just, coach, take culture is too strong right now for you to just fire takes off and, 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 and just have fun with it. People hold that against me for the rest of my life. But I felt the same for a while. Uh, they're the Sweet 16. I like the matchups. Uh, and, and every other team that shoots the ball, well, I just always have faith in. So shout out Michigan State. Uh, now we can move on to our very big announcement uh, for something we have coming up. And we will talk more March Madness at the end with some piss and specific prospects. Now, I was, we, we got to get a bet going. Like, I wasn't necessarily grow up a K-State fan, but we got a K-State-Michigan State matchup. So we got to figure out a bet here for that Sweet 16 matchup. But the announcement that we have been waiting to let you guys know. I've told you guys that me and my wife, Rainey, are coming to Detroit the 1st of April, and the Pistons Pulse will be coming to you live and in person with a live audience at the Hopcat Detroit in Midtown. That's 4265 Woodward Avenue, Monday, April 3rd. Omari, I'm excited. I'm a little bit nervous. I've never done anything like this before, but I'm extremely excited to record in person with all of our, hopefully, listeners and and everybody that supports the podcast. We'll get to meet these people in person. It is the night of the national championship game, so we'll hang around afterwards. We'll eat. We'll watch the game. We'll hang out, get a chance to interact with everybody. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really excited about this. 
Yeah, I mean, we've been planning this. I don't even know how long. Like, it's been so long since we first had the initial conversation about even setting this up. And yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, we're excited to record live. Uh, it, like, our, our flubs won't be edited out, like, on this episode. So just consider this for the practice run. Uh, you know, I think everybody's familiar with my intro by now. Uh, but it should be a fun night. You know, it'll be toward the end of the season. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of topics we could dive into with the offseason right around the corner. And I'm I'm excited. I mean, by all means, if you're in the area, um, you know, feel free to come out. You know, we'll, we'll chop it up, talk to you all, maybe watch some hoops. So uh, feel free to join us. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's Monday, April 3rd. It is the night of the national championship game. We won't be recording during it, of course. So we'll be able to watch that probably after the recording. 4265 Woodward Avenue, Hopcat, Detroit in Midtown. Wes will be there. I'm excited for that. He's going to be going through the crowd. You guys will be able to ask questions, interact, do all that stuff. So we got it all set up for you guys. So please come join us. We've been holding on to that, finally coming to fruition. But let's talk Detroit Pistons. And first, Omari, let's update the Pistons current lottery odds and the Pistons do have the worst record in the NBA but we were talking about before recording Amari that actually doesn't change a whole lot for them in terms of the top four all it really dictates is how low they can drop which is number five but their top one two three or four spots in the lottery is essentially the same whether you have the worst second worst or third worst record yeah so it's a 52.1 percent chance of staying in the top four uh for those bottom three teams and then like fourth place it dips down to 48.1 but as far as the actual odds for the the, the top picks it pretty much stays the same um whether you're one or, or three it's a 14 percent chance at number one uh 13.4 percent chance at number two and then 12.7 percent chance at three uh 12 at, at four so i mean at this point it seems pretty clear that the pistons are going to have a bottom three record uh, there's actually some separation now for them to just have to outright worse, but it's basically just can they fall down to five or can they fall down to seven? I also add that we're a little overdue for a team outside the, the top four uh, to jump into the top four and maybe get that first or second overall pick. Uh, when I covered the Grizzlies, they had, I think, the eighth best odds. Uh, the Pelicans had the seven for ninth. I forget the exact order, but they were well outside of it, and the Pelicans went number one, the Grizzlies went number two. And that was the first year for these new lottery odds. So it's been a little bit more standard since then. So personally, I wouldn't be shocked if it's a random team like Portland or Chicago ends up getting the, the number one. Like I hate to uh, bring that up now, but I just I saw a lot of Wimby talk with the TEL uh, today. And I'm just like, I, if it happens, cool. You know, I would, I would recommend people prepare themselves for the unexpected to happen because that's what the new lottery odds are for. Uh, but as far as just the actual best odds, like, it pretty much just decides whether they fought a fifth or seventh at this point. And in this draft, if you don't have a top four pick, there's probably not a lot of separation. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm not like, maybe you feel differently. Like I'm not really interested in like the tankathon race or anything like that at all. Like I'm sure people will tweet out their, you know, findings, like 10 tankathon spins, whatever. I may do it as an exercise just for something I write. But as far as just on Twitter, like everybody, they're going to fall between one and five where they're likely you don't have to stress about it too much. It's a random number generator. So, uh, not a lot of lottery intrigue this time around. It's just more so waiting until the actual lottery to see what happens. My thing is more just looking into all those different players, right? Like we know who Victor is. We know who Scoot is. Brandon Miller has exploded onto the scene, but it's like, okay, if they do fall to four, five, six, or seven, who are the other guys that are there? So I do like to look into that, and that's really all I pay attention to. But if you are into it, the Pistons are two and a half games, I guess, up 
on the Rockets for the worst record and then three and a half games up on the Spurs. And then, yeah, there's some separation. I believe the Hornets are almost like six games now. So it seems like the Pistons are locked into a bottom three record in the league this season and really looking, I guess, quote unquote, good for the worst record. But again, we'll see. Lottery odds, uh, draft lottery night will will obviously be pretty meaningful and really dictate where this offseason goes. But that's enough offseason talk, Omari. Let's give some flowers to some current vets on this team. And I love when I was talking to Wes about this, he's like, nobody else is going to be talking about these two guys on the podcast. And this is why I love Wes. He keeps us kind of focused and, and engaged with what needs to be talked about. Let's give some love. And I know maybe all the listeners might not like this, Omari. Let's give some love to Corey Joseph and Rodney Magruder. These guys have really, truly been playing well. And I don't think it's been all that easy what they've done after how many games they've sat this year. So what have been your thoughts? Let's just start with Kojo, Omari. Your thoughts on Corey Joseph, especially the last nine or ten games. Yeah, well, one, I mean, if you're just talking on-court impact, I think he's probably had his best week or best two weeks of the season. Uh, just how well he shot the ball. He's did a lot of clutch jumpers. It's not a stress to help them kind of stay within some of these games, you know, especially with Jaden Ivey missed a few games the other week uh, with, with, with COVID. I uh, just thought he really stepped up. Uh, but my thing with Koja is just all the stuff behind the scenes that you don't really see. And the longer I do this job, the more I realize that fans only put stock into what they see or into what they hear, which is like what happens on the court or just whatever I tweet out during like a press conference or write about it, the story, right? And even then a lot of people don't read, they'll like read the tweet for the story, but they won't actually click and see what's behind it. So I feel like it's hard to have a discussion about some guys because it's like you see a lot of stuff out of scenes that maybe hasn't really been properly encapsulated um, as far as like what they actually bring to the team every day. And Corey Joseph, like he's always awesome to talk to. Like he is, you know, just approach this job with with effort and, and joy every day. Uh, just the listening area he's been for all the young guards in the room, whether it's Killian, Jaden, Kate, um, you know, just the way he's been able to be sort of that, that 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 mentor for them, I think, has been pretty pretty obvious over the last couple of years, and then I think a couple of that was just he is steady on the floor, right? Like I think people get mad at Corey because he he does things he wasn't brought in to 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 do, but as a, a backup, you know, like third guard, I think he's performed our role pretty well too. I mean, the assist turnover ratio is always good. He shoots the ball well, uh, so yeah. I mean, if you ask any media member, I'm sure they would say Corey Joseph is one of the more enjoyable guys to talk to in that locker room, and. And he doesn't ever shout out for that because I think being a veteran on a rebuilding team is a thankless job. Nobody wants to see you play. Everybody wants to see the young guys. We show up, come to work, and I think Corey's really done that. Even whenever he plays well, nobody wants him to play well. If he's the reason the Pistons win a game, nobody actually wants to see that. With like, no the matter current... what you do, it's a bad situation. <laughs> yes. Played t- terribly, it's like, oh, this is why Corey shouldn't play. He plays well, he's taking the spot from the young guy. There's no circumstance where somebody wants a lot of fans want to see you succeed. And it's just a really, it's, like, it's, it's a thankless job. It really is. Like, no sure. matter what you do, somebody's going to be upset. And in fairness to the fans, Amari, they don't have the access to see some of those things, right? Like they don't get to see or talk to people who see and understand and appreciate what kind of veteran leadership brings. I just want to give some numbers, though. So he played in just three of 15 games in January and early February. And then he's played in 17 games since. In the first nine games, it was still less than 20 minutes per game. Had a really good assist to turnover ratio, like you mentioned. But in the last eight games, Amari, this is Corey Joseph. Almost 30 minutes per game, almost 15 points per game, shooting 52% from the field, 51% from three, and a 4.1 to 1.5 assist to turnover ratio. I mean, 
I think what needs to be appreciated is he just sat there for a whole month and didn't play, didn't do anything. And then all of a sudden he stepped on the floor and it's like, hey, go out and produce. And not only has he done it, he's played pretty well. Like, is he perfect? No. Is he the best defender? No. Does he make some mistakes? Absolutely. But he does a lot of the little things. Sounds like he's a great voice and presence in the locker room. And at the end of the day, he's been playing pretty well. Yeah, no, I agree with all of those points. And there's something about readiness too, right? Yes. Uh, that is a skill that maybe I think, you know, fans and even you know people who evaluate the team like we do kind of take for granted. Like a guy can be out of the rotation for any span of time. And, you know, it's also true for Rodney McGritter who we're going to get to. But, you know, these guys ride the bench for long stretches of time. I think if you look at the minutes distribution, the Pistons are very clearly prioritized playing their young players, giving them as many reps as possible. And Rodney and Corey may not see the floor for three weeks, uh, you know, but they they still show up every day. And when they come into play, they're ready. I mean, you just mentioned Corey's numbers, which uh, were better than I expected uh, before I, I saw that. Honestly, like, I just know just from his player history and just how we shot the barber last week that he's been red hot. But he doesn't turn the ball over a lot. And, you know, and some of the turnovers he has, like, I think for some reason, this whole team just has the ability to <laughs> toss him the worst turnovers I've ever seen from, like, <laughs> NBA players. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he hasn't been exempt from that this season. But it stands out for him more just because he, he he really does that, right? Like, I think there's a saying, you do your job well and nobody ever notices. Like, that's kind of him, right? Like, when he does do something that is a characteristic, it stands out. But, uh, I mean, like you said, I've known the sixth turnover ratio in his last nine games. And historically, he's always been really good as far as that. So, yeah, that's probably above his career average. But it's not it's not shocking because that's just who he is as a player. Speaking to the readiness, I, I pulled up Buddy Beheim's numbers. And, and this isn't even fair, but and it's not a critique of Buddy. It's just to show what this kind of takes, what the mentality takes. Buddy Beheim's best skill is what? Shooting. That's what he's known at, right? Buddy Beheim is 4 of 21 from 3 with the Pistons so far. And he's a career 36-37% shooter going back to college, the G League this season, all of that. My point is, I bring that up because it's not easy to do that. And that's showing right now with Buddy Beheim. And again, it's because he's young and he hasn't had to go through those things. It's not easy just to step on to the court in the middle of the season, at the end of the season with the team, and just produce even... With Buddy only being asked to do the one thing that you're supposed to be the best at. And that brings us to Rodney Magruder. Again, I love it from Blaha. Pro's pro. That's what Magruder is. Again, I like Magruder. I always have a special place for Magruder because he's a K-State guy. And he's like the one guy whenever I show up to a game I get to interact with because we have a connection from our personal lives or whatever. We, we know a mutual friend. And so I've been able to interact with him a little bit. So I always have a special place for Rodney, but here's some numbers for Rodney, Omari. He only played in 21 of the first 61 games, and lots of those were just four or 10 minutes, you know, scrap time. In the last seven games, he's playing over 30 minutes per game, 14 points per game, 46% from the field, 51% from three, 5.1 rebounds per game, obviously not a high assist guy, but also isn't turning the ball over. Like, that's just, he comes in and he produces. I think more broadly, Corey and, and Rodney are the big reason why I don't really buy into the, you know, players need to come off the bench or start to maximize whatever. And I think to an extent, like, yeah, you want to surround players, you know, with personnel who helps them play their best basketball. But it's a luxury to have that, uh, you know, like a lot of players who come to the NBA are not necessarily like focal point guys or the potential team to be seen as that. They're coming to the NBA, they're... Uh, like you're outside the lottery or like late lottery, so you don't necessarily have those expectations or it's like your second stop. 
or something just happened along the way to where maybe at one point you were seen as like a player with potential and that kind of went by the wayside, right? So you have to adjust and when teams are no longer trying to put you in the spotlight, right? Like you're not trying to tinker every aspect of the organization to help you become the best player you could be and you're just another cog. You have to be really good at being the cog and that's, I think, really the base skill that a lot of players have to figure out is how you bring that consistency every single day. Uh, I think for a lot of teams, a guy who's going to bring you uh, B consistency every single day is probably going to get a lot further than a guy who brings you A consistency one day, D the next, C the next, and then it's, well, he's got to have perfect circumstances to drive. Yeah, I'm talking about Killian Hayes to an extent, but like some other <laughs> players as, as, as well. I, I thought about Sadiq Bey. I don't, I don't yeah, want to bash Sadiq, Sadiq yeah. Bey. We, we talked about this, right? Like you look at his game logs, and I think even with Atlanta, it's been a little bit of the same. It's just it's up and down, and it's not consistent. Yeah, and that's and that's really what it's a, a, about. So I mean, Rondy, he comes and he's shooting lights out over the last week. That's the first time he's done it. I feel like this is the like there's like a stretch every season where the Pistons have to play him because of injuries or whatever. And he comes out and he plays well. Like he, I mean, he's shot the ball so well over this last week. And those guys are just ready. Like I think just from a readiness standpoint, to have two guys who does show up every day, do what they're supposed to do, and can bring that consistency every single time. And like it does mean a lot. And there's a reason why. Dwayne Casey tends to lead toward Bradley McGreer in the starting lineup because he's been coaching young guys all season. Like, he wants to have a veteran here. <laughs> so, both of these guys are 31 years old. Both of these guys are unrestricted free agents going into the offseason, Amari. I don't think there's a ton of roster turnover coming for this Pistons team in the offseason, but I still think there's potential roles for these guys as the 14th, 15th, 13th guys on this roster. What do you think? Do you think these guys end up back on the I don't think you necessarily want to see either one of these guys in your 10-man rotation. I don't think either of us are saying that. But I still see, I think, some value in them being 14, 15, 13. And especially if this team is really trying to compete, if somebody misses two weeks and you need a backup two-guard, you could do worse than Rodney Magruder. I agree. You know, I, I don't think the Pistons are against bringing them back. I think it... Uh, this is probably more of a order of operations type of deal uh, when you go into the offseason, right? Uh, you know, first, you probably, you're aware that you're going to bring in at least one player through the draft. I don't know if they're going to process draft with the same mindset as some previous ones where it's like, let's get as many young guys as possible. But, you know, you have at least one pick there. Uh, you have a guy overseas and, and, and Prashida uh, who may or may not come over this offseason. It's kind of early to say as far as that. Uh, but they have a lot of roster spots that are accounted for already. And then you have to figure out what do we do with Omarui? What do we do with Hami? Hami, yep. Um, you know, some everything's there. Uh, so it's tough to say. You know, it's tough to say. I think it would, I think these are guys who fit the system, like Trey. I mean, he's on record saying he always wants to have veterans in the fold. You know, I know him and, and Ronnie Begruder have been close, uh, you know, dating back before Ronnie was even in the NBA. Like, you know, there's a really close personal relationship there. Wouldn't shock me to see them back. You know, I think it's more so, you know, with their overall. A commitment to being a better team next season, you probably just figure out the order of operations as far as what's the best use for each roster spot. And then if you can have them back after, then you go ahead and do that. And I think there is an argument to be made that if Boyan and Burks are both on the roster next season, those are your vets. And maybe you don't have room through the rest of your roster for the same thing. But we just felt we had to give some love to those two guys. You know, not two guys we talk a lot about, probably won't talk about them much in the offseason. If they end up going somewhere else, probably won't be big news, but felt like it was time to give them their flowers and they deserve that. And after this short break, we're going to dive into some young players that I'm sure the fan base wants to hear us discuss. That's Jalen Duran, that's James Wiseman, that's Marvin Bagley III, and how those three bigs have been looking recently.
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back for segment two, and we're going to get into the two big lineups, uh, which have really, since the James Wiseman trade, been maybe the dominant on-court storyline. For the scene, you know, especially for everybody else being hurt. I mean, I just don't know if curious to really <laughs> discuss at this point. But there is a lot of intrigue with how Dwayne has handled this real chase, real rotation thus far. I know a lot of people have asked why is Jalen Duran coming off the bench, uh, this and that. Um, you know, which I think is a fair question. Uh, you know, I think the way the team kind of looks at it now is figuring out roles, right? Uh, you know, you need a big to stay in the paint. You need a big is going to be more of a roamer. And then offensively, um, you know, Dwayne talks about the need for spacing, like Marvin Bagley after the last game talked about there being a need for spacing uh, to maximize those lineups. And you can look at the skill sets here, and, you know, it's probably a lot of overlap in the areas you don't need and not enough in the areas you kind of do. Um, you know, one thing that's kind of stood out to me is just that they have staggered Durham and Wiseman. And some of that, I think we're dealing with a limited sample size because a lot of that is – Injuries, like there's no Isaiah Stewart and Bagley mystery games just came back. So I would just look at the regular situation, right? But right now, it seems like the implication that they view Duran and Wiseman more as fives and Bagley as more of the four. Uh, where we've seen, I think, just in this season in general, we've seen Bagley play off of another big and Barcelona the other way around. That was one thing I wanted to, to bring up and talk to you because that's my vibe. Like watching even uh, Saturday night's game. Saturday? Uh, now it's me. Did they play <laughs> Saturday or Sunday? Sunday. They play Sunday. Sunday. Watching Sunday night's game, I felt like Bagley looks more like the foreman. It seems like that's where they're trying to – and to be honest with you, I want to talk about this a little bit as we go through. I think he looks like the better foreman right now between him and James Wiseman. I want to come back to that. I want to go to the Durin coming off the bench because this has been a huge conversation. I knew it was a huge thing for the fan base when they traded for James Wiseman. People were like, oh, this means they're done with Jalen Duran. They're not going to try to develop him. And I think a lot of us – content creators, podcasters, et cetera, said, no, 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 it's not going to be like that. They're still going to prioritize Jalen Duran. Well, now we see Jalen Duran coming off the bench. Two questions, Amari. One, have you guys directly asked Dwayne Casey that question? And, you know, what was the answer if so? But if not, what are your thoughts on Jalen Duran currently coming off the bench in favor of James Wise? I asked Dwayne um, before Bagley came back, right? Like, you know, because one of those guys has to come off of the bench, so I, I just asked him more or less. Since you're, I know you want to sag him throughout the game, but what kind of leads to Duran being a guy that comes off of the bench? And I think one, they like the energy that Duran brings. Like he's an off-ball guy, he can come in, he clean those rebounds and all of that. Uh, you know, and then right between the lines, I think that they just want to save him a little bit. Like he's kind of been worn down over the course of the season. Like you know, he was dragging those three games, finishing them out with ankle soreness, and uh, you know, he's played a good amount of minutes this season. And you know, I think. Even with Bagley back and took him off the bench, it wouldn't surprise me if they just want to get a longer look at Wiseman. They know what Duran is. You know, there's probably not a lot to to unlock at this point in the season as far as figuring out what type of player Duran is. Like, I think we could pretty firmly say what he's good and not good at. So it's just getting a longer look at James Wiseman, who has only been here, you know, like a month and a half, really like five weeks. And just getting a longer look at him, uh, you know, because you have, what, like 10 games left. And uh, there's still probably a lot that we don't know 
about his game, even though we've seen him probably for a good month and a half now. I think that was one thing that clicked with me is maybe you start Wiseman so you can see Wiseman against starting caliber, you know, front lines, right? Like yeah. if you're bringing him off the bench, well, you're seeing him playing against second unit guys. And I'm not saying that you can't get a look, but maybe they want to see, you know, how does he look against starters? How does he look against Jokic? You know, the best front lines. How does he look against Bam Adebayo instead of going against those teams' second guys? And speaking of Bam, I want to ask you, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. You recently dropped an article on Jalen Duran, and I believe there was a quote in there about Bam Adebayo. So can you give us a little sneak peek into that article and kind of where that bam out of bio comment came sure yeah just talking to you know Dwayne, uh you know like last week he mentioned that um they have been and this is sort of like a recurring thread over the last two weeks just talking to Dwayne about what he wants to see from durant and i asked him a question at practice and he mentioned that uh they are they've had durant watch film of bam bam out of bio uh yeah i think everybody kind of thinks about the passing there but uh, and there's obviously some parallels there as well, but Dwayne talked about it more from the standpoint of just the effort that Bam plays with, a lot of little things he does that he wants to see Durant doing, whether it's setting the hard screens or just running the floor hard or just like those small nuances. And I think another parallel with Bam and Durant is they were drafted around the same area. Durant was 13th, Bam was 14th. They were both athletic, energetic, rim-running centers in college. Uh, Darren, I think, actually is probably high, more highly regarded coming out. A lot of teams did not see Bam as a lottery guy uh, before Miami took him that high. He was more late first, early second round. But there's a lot of parallels there. And then after Dwayne mentioned that, I went to talk to Jalen Duran about it. And he said, I've been, I've been watching film with Bam even before I, you know, I came into the NBA. Like, that's just the guy he always modeled his game after. So it was just a conversation with Dwayne and, and Bam out of bio about that, man. And, you know, and with Duran, I think that's kind of where the fences are now, right? Like, we know what you could do. I want to see you uh, do a lot of the, the the effort things that don't necessarily come naturally, but are just things you have to learn from playing in the NBA. And that was kind of overall take away from the story. Like, Duran's been really good, but there's still a lot of small areas he can improve in. I could nudge him closer to just being an above-average center, to being a, being a game-changing center. And I will say it's good to hear that because I will say my pre-draft evaluation and talking to other draft analysts, even since Duran's come into the league, there have been some questions or once in terms of increasing the motor and how hard he plays. And, and I never know if it's motor or if it's conditioning, but you know, I said, everybody's like, he should be playing 35, 36 minutes. And I was like, I don't know that Jalen Duran's ready to play 35, 36 minutes a night. Yeah. And so I, I do love to hear that just some of those little things that, you know, continue to work hard and run the floor box out I, I sent out a tweet today on monday actually where he missed a box out in that heat game actually two on one possession i do think that's a small area for him to grow you know just to give again some stats since james wiseman showed up on february 15th his minutes have gone down about eight minutes per game but his efficiency has also gone down amari he's actually getting more attempts in less minutes but his field goal percentage is down his rebounding is probably about the same if you look at minutes so I do wonder if Wiseman has hit a little bit of that rookie wall, plus he's dealt with some injuries. So I don't think it's awful to say, hey, let's bring him off the bench. Let's play him 20 minutes a night here to close out the season. And let's really see what we have from Wiseman and Marvin Bagley III. And I think when it comes to a lot of the, I want to see certain guys play a world minutes or whatever, uh, like fans just don't really take into account the physical toll of the game at all. And a lot of rookies do wear down towards the end of the year, especially big men. Uh, you know, I think it's 
I mean, conditioning has been a thing. I'm going to say it's been a, a thing with Duran, but he just had the ankle injury, so he missed time because of that. And typically, if a guy's not playing a certain amount of minutes and there's no apparent reason why, the reason is, you know, this guy's hit some sort of physical wall and, you know, we're just going to dial it back a little bit and kind of let him get his, his win back. Because even before the ankle injury, like I said, you saw the tail-cell signs of him starting to snow down. So to me, all those factors kind of factor into why Duran is coming off of the bench. But I just think from a team just priority, like what it means to figure out now standpoint, the clock is a lot shorter for James Wiseman than it is for Duran. Uh, Duran's at the beginning of his rookie year. Wiseman towards the end of it. Wiseman could sign an extension this summer if he wanted to, right? You know, and it's tough to say whether that's more likely now or if they bring him to restricted free agency. You know, if they can get him to a good deal this summer, I'm sure that they'll look to do that, you know, in case the price goes up down the road. But they just need to figure some things out with James Wiseman. And and I think it's just tough right now for Isaiah Stewart being out that you probably don't have that flexibility of playing guys at par forward or center to the extent that you would like. But to me, it's just more of a timeline thing. Like, James Wiseman or stuff you got to figure out now because there's money you may have to spend in a few months to secure his future here. So to be as simple as that. Yeah, I wonder if they would like to do that before this new cap comes in and the new TV deal and all that. You get him on a what looks like a decent deal and then it becomes even better whenever the cap skyrockets. Let's talk about James Wiseman, Marvin Bagley, the third, individually first, Amari, and then we will tackle kind of like the comparison. So James Wiseman, since coming to the Pistons on February 15th, he's played in 14 games, started 12, only averaged 27 minutes a game, so it's not like he's getting to play 40 or something. Just under 14 points a game, 56 percent from the field on 11 attempts he's just three of 12 from three 67 percent from the free throw line almost 10 rebounds a game almost three offensive rebounds a game and one block where are you at with the James Wiseman experience so far 14 games into it and those are all specifically just with the Detroit Pistons this season I think he's been exactly as advertised honestly like I haven't really been surprised by anything uh, offensively he shows flashes of that face-up game he can move his back behind the basket uh, you know, transition lap threat, extremely coordinated. So he just has a really sort of impressive set of tools to work with as an offensive big man. He's knocked down some threes. He's only three for 12 for three. Uh, but he did hit one on Sunday. And mechanically, I think his, his stroke looks fine. Um, I did ask Dwayne about uh, seeing him shoot a bit more. And I, and I think Dwayne's preference is just to move bigs along a bit more slowly as far as that. Like, I could, I could say with confidence James Wiseman shoots <laughs> after almost every practice because I've, I've watched him along with Isaiah Stewart and, and Duran and the other bigs that I work on shooting, but probably won't see his three-point attempts go up a lot this season. But he's been as advertised. I think offensively he uh, is a pretty complete big in a lot of ways or has a chance to be. Uh, he doesn't, he's, his hands are not great and that's why part of me wonders if long-term you probably want him as a four more as a, a, a five, you can just get a more sure-handed big down low uh, to back him up. Uh, defensively, like you see flashes of him being able to move in, in space and having the rim protection instincts, but he's a second late on some stuff. Uh, techniques back, has a lot to clean up there. Uh, I haven't really been surprised about much. I'm curious to hear what you think, Bryce, because I think he's been pretty on the nose as far as what you could reasonably expect from him uh, just through 15 games. Yeah, this isn't going to be fair, Amari. I feel the same way, but that almost lends me to be a little disappointed. And I don't think that's fair to James Wiseman, you know, because like it was like, this is who I thought he was, and this is who he's been. He's probably been a little bit better just in terms of the overall production. You know, the defense hasn't been... That's probably where, like, I tried to come out and defend him a little bit defensively when the trade happened, and like, hey, the pick-and-roll defense is a little bit better. It hasn't been good. Like, if you look at synergy numbers, I looked up synergy, and you can't always trust defensive metrics, but it's actually 
really, really bad in his time with the Pistons, even worse than Bagley and Jalen Duren. He's easily the worst of those three. But offensively, I think it's been what I thought. I guess my disappointment is not the right word, Amari. I guess where I would have liked to see more, and Wes and I talk about this almost every day, I guess I just wanted to see a little bit more of that four-man game, a little bit more of the face-up, catch it in the three-point line, attack it, close out. Once every three or four games, we see a rebound and he just grabs and goes and Like It usually ends up being productive. I I do think the passing flashes have been better recently, um, so that's been good to see. But I guess that's where I I just would like to see more. I would like to see more just the skill level that I think is there, but I don't know that we're getting a chance to see it. Do do you agree with that, or has it essentially shown as much as what you thought? I think seeing him outside of his comfort zone a little bit could be telling as far as you know, just how far does this game stretch? You know, uh, he has me taking threes at a high volume, and I think long term, although, you know, I, you know, the, to an ex- extent, the Pistons are probably comfortable with him not being a high volume three point shooter. Uh, you know, if he could do everything else well, rebound, defend, all that. Uh, but I think they have tried to play him, you know, toward his, his strengths, right? They're not asking him to do too much. Uh, they know he has drawbacks defensively, but they're, you know, comfortable with him just getting the reps, kind of get comfortable. And offensively, too, you know, they're playing them. You know, in areas where he's comfortable from, which is like short mid range, you know, in the paint, uh, not too much from like maybe that 16 feet back area. So I would say for me personally, you know, maybe if you're trying to get a full grasp of like just how good is this guy, seven feet moves like that, uh, you know, maybe give him more challenging assignments or, you know, stretch his game out a little bit more. But I think it's just been very intentional. Like, let's just get him reps. Don't put too much on his plate. You know, put him in positions where he's comfortable and can thrive and then just go from there. Because he has a full offseason ahead to round out his game and do this other stuff. So I think as far as the in-game stuff, it's been very deliberately, let's keep it simple. All right. I want to talk about Marvin Bagley III, Omari. Because I think Marvin Bagley III has been really good since he's returned. So these are numbers over the last nine games. He started six of them, and all of these are better than the 25-game stretch in November and December. He's averaging 13.5 points on 52% from the field, also getting just under 11 attempts a game. He's just 1 of 14 from three, 62% from the line, 8.4 rebounds, 3.7 of those offensive, just under a block per game. I feel like Marvin Bagley III has looked really good again in these last nine games, and to be quite honest with you, Amari, I think he looks like the better option as a four-man just based with how he's able to move and him being able to attack closeouts, do stuff off the bounce. What have you thought of Marvin Bagley the third, and then kind of comparing him and James Wiseman? I think offensively, Bagley probably has the best sense of spacing and where he needs to be, and I think that helps him out a lot. Uh, I think he understands to an extent when he needs to attack where he needs to get out of the way and let another guy uh, maybe operating on there. Uh, one thing he mentioned a few weeks ago is he played, you know, with Wendell Carter Jr. At, at Duke. So it's not the first time he's been in a situation where he's being asked to, um, you know, maybe sacrifice in, in, in some way to accommodate another big. And, uh, you know, as far as that, that Duke front court, uh, just watching that, that Duke team, I remember Wendell being like the superior passer. Uh, both of those guys were, were pretty bouncy, but, you know, Marvin operated from mid-range a lot and, uh, you know, attack, he was still a lob threat. But I think a lot of those instincts are kind of k- kicking in here, and it's why he's probably been, just looking at, like, raw numbers, raw efficiency, he's probably been their best big man in, in some ways, honestly, you know, since we've kind of reached this new chapter of uh, the Pistons em- em- embracing these two big lineups. So he's he's been good. Like, he's, he's really been good. Uh, you know, I think uh, that ankle soreness injury, he had to cost him three games. Um, 
maybe eliminated some of the gains he made as far as people realizing, oh, Marvin Bagley's playing really good basketball right now. But he has been good. He has been good. I want to ask you about the post-ups from these guys, because if I have one kind of critique of this lineup, it's how much these guys try to post up, especially when they're on the floor together. So just, again, some synergy numbers. Jalen Duran's number one and number two play types on synergy are putbacks and cuts. I don't think that would surprise anybody. Not very much with post-ups. Here's Marvin Bagley III. His number one play type is post-ups. He's below average, but he's in the 90th percentile in frequency and 17th percentile in points per possession. James Wiseman, number one play type is post-up. He's actually ranked as poor, but 97th percentile in frequency and 9th percentile in point per possession rank. So I just... If there's one thing, if there's one thing, Amari, I would like to see these guys kind of eliminate, it's how much they go to post-ups, especially when they're on the floor together. Do you think that that's just kind of their comfort zone right now? Do you see the same thing as you're watching? Because the numbers don't always tell the story, Amari. Like, I'm very aware of that. But I feel like for me, those numbers kind of back up the eye test as, man, they're trying to run a ball screen, but Wiseman is posting up or uh, I think it was the first play of the game on Sunday. Wiseman screened and it looked like he should have popped, but he rolled into the post and it completely messed up the play. Uh, wh- what are your vibes on kind of the posting up of those two guys? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, like, I guess chaos. Like, I don't know if that's too strong of a word, but, like, there's, like, maybe some dysfunction between the guys settling the ball and then the bigs as far as where everybody needs to be and what everybody wants to do. So, like, I think in general, Bar- like, Bagley is – like a guy who could post up and you feel okay about it. And I think those numbers are lower than you would expect. You know, I think with Wiseman, like he can post up, but one thing I'd be curious about is that I think he tends to, you know, this is just like eye test, but I think uh, Wiseman, I know for a fact he takes more shots from short mid range than both Bagley and Duran. And I wouldn't be shocked if he's posted up from there and just taking those short mid range shots and they're just, not falling right. Um, you know, so I think some of that is just, you know, Detroit's guards, maybe not being accustomed to having, like post up options for one, like you, like you didn't really have that last season until Bagley uh, came into the fold, and he's been hurt. Like he missed a lot of this season. Like he's just been hurt, and then you just get Wiseman then. So you know maybe you got stuff he worked on over the summer, but as far as that carrying over into the season, Bagley missed summer preseason. He missed a big chunk of the start of the regular season. Like he's just missed so much time. And you know, not Wiseman. Like you know, I guess where are they taking these shots from? Like how good are these looks? Uh, there's just been a lot of dysfunction as far as that. I think it's also just a function of the fact that none of these guys are, are natural shooters. Like they could take and make it three every now and then. Well, you know, at least Bagley and Wiseman can, but they're not just camped out from behind the three-point arc. So if you're thinking, all right, we need a bucket, what are you going to do? You know, you're, you know, you could probably do a quick pick and roll, but uh, there's a lot of overlapping skill sets between those guys. So you don't need two guys selling a pick. One guy's going to have to figure out something else to do. And I think it's just a mix of all those things, honestly. Like I don't think they are as bad at posting up as those numbers suggest, but I think just, you know, trying to make two bigs work, and, you know, you have young ball handlers and this and that. It's just probably not conducive to them scoring the ball very well with their backs to the basket. Yeah, I think what they have to do is find the right times, right? If they're running yeah. a, a pick and roll and Bagley's rolling down, then Duran needs to be, or Wiseman needs to be in the dunker spot, right? You can't be posting up. You got to be in the dunker spot ready to catch and finish or get an offensive rebound. I like when Wiseman runs the floor and gets early transition post position, but if the guards don't get you the ball, then you got to get out and get into the flow of the offense. We've seen him a couple times try to stay in there and stay in there, and then you can't get into anything. And then real quick, before we move on, I did want to give the ball screen numbers because I feel like a lot of times 
people complain, well, the Pistons don't run enough ball screen. They're actually one of the more ball screen heavy teams in the league. And these guys will show it as well. So Jalen Duran in the pick and roll grades out at very good 70th percentile in frequency, 72nd percentile in points per possession. Marvin Bagley, the third is actually the worst of them. He just averaged 65th percentile and frequency James Wiseman in his time with the Pistons is excellent 66 percentile in terms of frequency 86 percentile in points per possession so actually some intriguing numbers there and encouraging numbers in ball screens with those guys so I think it really is just kind of finding that flow and again with everybody in and out of the lineup Omari we've talked about this we talked about it right Rodney and Corey they're able to just step in and kind of be a cog in the machine well these bigs especially being young, that's a little bit harder to do. Absolutely. And we even talked to Dwayne about this on Sunday, about just those entry passes to guys posting up being a bit of a, a, a lost art. Uh, we've seen Ivy's pick and roll, uh, I think, comfort increase over the yes. course of the year, you know, particularly with athletic bigs that he could just toss lobs to. And, you know, Killian Hayes, like that's sort of his MO is, you know, being a guy who can, you know, kind of work with bigs in, in the pick and roll. So, um, that makes sense to me. Uh, you know, I just think a lot of this is just, you know, Detroit Scars not knowing what to do in certain situations and, uh, the bigs also just figuring out amongst themselves, like who handles what role, uh, which, you know, starts with coaching as well. But I think they're just figuring out a lot of things at once. Um, also, just keep in mind that this has just been a rotating cast for all the bigs too. So it's one thing to have, you know, schemes in place to help guys succeed. It's another thing to actually have players healthy and available to learn how to enact those uh, schemes, right? So I don't necessarily blame the coaching staff as much there just because everybody's taking turns being hurt to get badly back on Sunday. And then Duran gets, uh, you know, elbowed or headbutted on his chin and, you know, doing something about being woozy after the game, which doesn't sound good. You know, like we'll have an injury update probably after we finish recording this. So we don't have a during the injury update right now, but just guys in and out, there's just been a lot of just chaos and dysfunction with the two big lineups. And I think a lot of these numbers uh, look more murky than maybe the reality or what this can become down the road because of that. Yeah, I mean, hopefully next year we won't have to deal with all these injuries and we'll get a little kind of sign a set lineup with set personnel with those schemes and guys will be able to get comfortable within those, kind of figure out where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. But we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to shift gears a little bit. It is March Madness season, Omari. And both of us being the basketball fans that we are, it was a great four days of watching hoops, tracking the NCAA tournament. We felt like we could dive into some of that with, of course, an emphasis on Detroit Pistons possible draft picks just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left listen to where secrets go to die the disappearance of Derek Hennigan from the Detroit Free Press a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with segment three, and we're going to talk some March Madness. Uh, I'm going to lead off. I'm just going to lead off with who I picked in my championship for my bracket, and I'll let you go, Bryce. Uh, but this actually helps set up you know, our next talking points because it's two teams with prospects who could be Pistons in a few months. So I have Bama, uh, who I think is just far and away the best team in college basketball this season. And then I have Arkansas. I picked Arkansas as an AC Ooh, to go all the way to the championship. I like it. Because um, you know, I like their coach. And 
I just look at that team, like they have two bigs who are pretty good defensively, like in block shots. Like up front, you have Anthony Black, who's one of the better perimeter defenders in, in college right now. Um, like you have you have guys who can hit shots. Like I just look at it from the standpoint of over the course of a tournament, how many problems can this team solve? And I I just think they can solve every problem. Like Ricky Council the fourth, like being a really big guard that can handle the ball, um, and like, you know, get to the rim. Uh, they just, I just, I just like that team a lot, and you know, I, I think it actually picked a, you know, I'm pretty sure I have Michigan State and Arkansas playing <laughs> each other in the in the final four, and I and I and I did pick Arkansas to win that one, but uh, you know, but that's I see this like I still stand by this. Just watching these teams play makes you feel more strongly about Alabama and Arkansas and you up in that championship game. And Nick Smith Jr. hasn't even played well. Nick Smith Jr., no, at least to start the season, was the, the best NBA prospect on that team. Now he's dealt with injuries. He may still end up going higher. It'll be between him and Anthony Black. But I, I have a feeling right now Anthony Black is going to get picked higher than Nick Smith Jr. I have to ask you this, because obviously they beat Kansas. And I, I was sick. I was so upset. I caught the stomach bug this weekend and was out all day Saturday. I was so frustrated that I missed that day. But maybe I'm just salty. I did not personally appreciate Eric Musselman taking his shirt off. What? It, okay, so you were a fan of it. You liked yes, it. Yes, 100%. Okay, all right, let's move on because I think no, it's no, ridiculous. No, 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 no. Why, why are you not a fan of him taking his shirt off? I love celebrations. I yeah. love doing your thing. Here's my thing. I think there's a certain way you act on the court, especially as the coach. And then once you get into the locker room, go crazy. You want to dance. You want to take your clothes off. You want to play music. You want to squirt water, whatever. I thought that was a little much. Now, I'm very, I, I'm very much old school. I get it. I, I just, I thought it was a lot. And, and that, that was just me. So I wanted to ask. Obviously, we're on very, very different ends of the spectrum on this. And so I understand the emotion, Omari. I get it. I understand it. I just thought it was a lot, especially for the coach. Just my no, that's thoughts. Fair. That's fair. For one, I, I want to correct myself. Arkansas is on the opposite side of the bracket for Michigan State. I actually picked Kansas State, Michigan State in this one, so I was kind of deflating my teams a little bit there. Uh, I would say I was just – for one, it was unexpected, right? So I don't know a lot about him as, like, a personality. So, you know, for him to pull off that upset, that he immediately goes to, this, to the – you know, the contention of, of Arkansas fans there just takes his shirt off and he's like so that's singing what, and all that. that like, that's it caught me completely off guard. It caught me off guard too because, like, you know some coaches that are more emotional, right? Like, you yeah. kind of, you know their personalities a little bit. I, I don't know if that's who he is or if the emotion just truly got the best of him. That's what would be interesting to me to know. Like, did did the, the moment just, because I do know, like, that moment can be very over, like, I've never won a game that big, but... We've, I've been a part of some pretty big wins in Division One basketball, like the first chance to go to the NCAA tournament in school history. I was a part of that with my team. And so that, that obviously meant a lot to us. Um, so I understand the emotion, but it just it took me off guard a little bit. That's what I should say. I, I'm not like overly critical of it, but I wouldn't be beating down Arkansas's door to send my son to go play there after seeing that. That's what I'll say. That's fair. I will also say that if you be the one seed, you should be able to take your shirt off and fair and, enough. And, that, and that's fine. And, and celebrate. So hey, you be they, the they, it's also Arkansas, though. It wasn't the fairly Dickinson opposite. Like Arkansas was one of the the teams in the preseason. They just had an underwhelming seat. There's two teams that are left in the Sweet 16, Amari, Arkansas and Creighton, who were very highly ranked and thought of early in the season, didn't have great regular seasons, and now they're making runs at the right time. So all credit to them, but it's not like it was the 16-1 upset of Purdue that Fairleigh Dickinson had. 
No, it wasn't a huge upset. You know, I think for them, uh, I mean, the SEC is tough, obviously, and uh, they were like really up and down during conference play. And you come in and you're an eighth seed, and just talent wise, that team is way better than that. So I understand it just from the, I knew we were this good, and now we just beat, you know, a, a, a team that we were once seen as peers. But defending national champs. Yeah, like, the, yeah, you know, the defending, like the national champs at that. Like, that's, I get it. I get it. Like, I'm just saying. In that moment, I think taking your shirt off and like screaming is an appropriate reaction. Okay. I'm just a fun hater. People text me after every single, at literal, Coach Graham, I can't wait to get your text about how much of a fun hater I am because I get it after every single episode. Here's another thing, just big picture thing. I know we're a little off track. I, I have to laugh about True TV. And I don't know why it makes me, I know nothing about True TV. I couldn't tell you what channel it is. I can't tell you what they show. I only need True TV for four days out of 365 days out of the year. And I don't know why it's funny to me, but I just laugh that True TV is a part of March Madness. And then it, it could hibernate for the next uh, 360 whatever days, 361 days. Yeah, I forget uh, which which player this was, or even which team. But I saw a clip last night where uh, you know a guy on the team just won, and he actually dropped the f bomb. <laughs> the the, the uh, TV presenter was like, "Oh, it's okay. We're on true TV. It's all right." Like I don't it's, think about it's, it's not CBS. It's okay. It's not CBS. It's okay. It's true TV. Like people don't like people watch this for two weeks, and then everybody goes back to their lives. So uh, yeah, like I don't know how true TV even got that deal. Like that's this is like the most random. Like, to get some good games, too. Like, it's extremely random. I don't know how that happened. Let's go through this. Let's start in the South bracket. This is the Alabama bracket. I think this is going to come down to Alabama or the aforementioned Creighton. So just some teams. Well, let's start with the Cinderella story. How about Princeton, man? The, like, everybody is talking about Fairleigh Dickinson, right? Like, they upset Purdue. But we're talking about a 15 seed who pulled an upset and then won again, and now they're in the Sweet 16. So we got to give some flowers to Princeton. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy uh like i feel like at this point you could expect a team seated lower than like maybe like 12 to like make it to the sweet 16 just because we're just seeing way more chaos in the tournament every year which you know i'm sure it's just because teams are taking more threes than ever so there's a lot more variance uh that's not that's not the 15 seed i thought would get get there i actually picked oral roberts because one they, they've done it before and then two yeah. they're one of the best shooting teams and max Abmus. Yeah, you know, and they just got completely dismantled by Duke, which I didn't believe in Duke at all unless it in, you know, the second game. Uh, I just didn't feel like this Duke team had you, – you can seven a Duke team has it, right? And this team – like, it was a good team, but it just didn't have, like, that it factor that you see from Duke teams. So, uh, yeah, shout-out to shout-out to Princeton, you know? Like, you're an Ivy League school, so, you know, these kids are probably set for life. They're like, you know what? We're going to crush some dreams, too, along the way, because why not? You know, we're going to make it to the Sweet 16. So, shout-out to – Princeton on the 15th seed. It's always cool to see that. So obviously the names to, to look at for Pistons fans. One, if you watch Virginia play, Reese Beekman is a second round prospect, a guard, really good defender. That's a name to get familiar with if you're looking at that pick in the second round for Detroit. But the big name in this is obviously Brandon Miller. Didn't even score in the first game, Omari, against the 16th seed, but then played pretty well in their second round game. Sounds like he's really making traction to even compete there with Scoo. I know I've come on here and said, it's scoot at number two. I still feel that way right now, but I think there's more of a discussion right now for scoot versus Brandon Miller at number two. And so we'll get a chance to see him against San Diego State for all Pistons fan. This is a guy that who there's a very, very real chance that Brandon Miller could become a Detroit Pistons. So if you want to get familiar with him, he plays in the Sweet 16 against San Diego State and, and possibly even more games as I think we both believe they're the favorite to win it all. 
Yeah, and it sounds like he's dealing with a, a, a groin injury, which, you know, probably goes into that off night he had the other night. Uh, they still won. It just speaks to how good they are to, you know, pull it off about their best player. Uh, but Brandon Miller's so good. And, you know, you kind of see the way things were trending for a while where you reach to get to the points where, oh, he's the clear number three. Uh, like, that's just the draft cycle. Like, you have to eventually question if the number three guy should be number two. And I brought up this draft reminds me of 2019. But I think I like Brendan Miller as a prospect more than I liked R.J. Barrett as a prospect. And that's you know, largely because of just how much better he shoots the ball. And if you're talking about of those top three guys, okay, well, I'm not going to say top three because Wimby's in his own tier. But I would say between Scoot and Brendan Miller, if Brendan Miller closes that gap enough, and he absolutely can, I think, in March, that he will have teams like the Pistons or if whatever team moves up and they're set at guard, who will say, are we just better off taking Brendan Miller? Because I do think the thing about Scoot Henderson, and I think he has the tools to be like an above-average point guard, for his archetype, uh, where you get downhill, you know, your passer, jump shot's a little iffy, and I probably buy into a jump shot more than a lot of guys with archetype, but it's still a question mark. Uh, you tend to see a lower ceiling as far as what they accomplish, like in, in postseason and whatnot. And, you know, part of me wonders, like, I don't think a team will, you know, say we're not going to, you know, draft scoop because five years from now we're going to hit sitting as a second round team in the playoffs or anything. But from a Pistons standpoint, it does make me wonder if you look at Cade, you look at Jaden Ivey and you're just like, we don't need a third guy who's like a primary behind him. We can just take Brandon Miller and feel good about it. And we will trust that no matter how good Scoot Henderson is, it won't get to the points where we're like, oh, we should have traded one of Jaden Ivey or Cade and just taken him. Now, again, if he's your best prospect, you take him at number two, but I'm curious to see if Brendan Miller can put together a performance in March that really makes us reevaluate that thinking. And I think that's what's important, right? And, and I think sometimes people don't want to do this because it's like, oh, we were wrong. Two months ago when I said you take Scoot Henderson and you don't think about it, yeah, okay, maybe you say I'm wrong, but that was the data we had two months ago. The data has changed, Omari, and if we don't change our thought process with the data, then what are we doing here? Over the last two months, Brandon Miller has gotten better. He's improved on his weaknesses. One of his weaknesses was finishing around the rim. Not only did he get better at that, he got better against SEC opponents, against better competition. His playmaking has gotten better. He's been consistent. This wasn't the number one recruit coming into this into this season. So like there was more data that needed to be acquired and gathered on Brandon Miller. And so far he's checked all of those on the court boxes. And so I think at this point, the discussion is real. And if he gets into that same tier with Scoot, remember that's where it's at for me was Scoot was in a different tier. If he gets into the same tier as Scoot Henderson, then absolutely you have to strongly consider drafting Brandon Miller because the fit isn't even a question. Like it's not even close, Amari, especially based off what we've seen from Jaden Ivey. So I think this has become a real discussion. And again, if you want to be like, oh, you guys said this two months ago, that's fine. I actually think it's progressive for us to say, hey, Two months ago, this is where it was at. And today, this is what the new data shows. And Brandon Miller is very much a part of the conversation. 100%. And I think just from just the way he plays the game, Brandon Miller, Scoot Harrison does not fit on every NBA team. But sure. Brandon Miller does. And I think Absolutely. that's probably something you consider as well, just from a pure fit standpoint. Yeah, this guy might be better. But if he is like, you know, an A- minus, and Brandon Miller is like maybe a B-plus prospect that you know no matter what shape your team takes over the next five years, Brandon Miller fits on that because the team doesn't need a sweet shooting. 6'9 wing who's improved to miss inside the arc in the past too, right? Like he's just, he's a perfect fit. So I think that debate will be fun as we get closer to the draft. Uh, 
you know, because I think in a draft like this where like the number one guy is pretty pretty set, and I don't see either either of those guys challenging one B just because one B is one B. You know, I think going into the lottery, especially if a team like the Pistons and that's in that number two spot, it does become a genuine debate, right? Like, do we just take Scoot, figure it out later, or do we take a guy in Brendan Miller who not only might be as good as Scoot, fits a massive, massive need as well. And also, if you're superstitious, a lot of number three picks end up being better than number two picks <laughs> in draft as well, so maybe it's like your, your number three. So a couple other things. On his team is a guy named Noah Clowney, so if you're watching Alabama, look out for Noah Clowney as well. He's kind of more of a traditional big guy. And then Creighton, if you're watching the other game in that Sweet 16, has multiple possible NBA draft prospects. Not with, like, lottery pick guys, but Trey Alexander, Arthur Kaluma, Ryan Cockbrenner, multiple guys on that Creighton team. And that's why people were so high on them. Baylor Shireman. So just a lot of guys on that Creighton team if you want to watch that. Let's move to the East and continue to move through this. First, Fairleigh Dickinson wasn't even supposed to be in the tournament, Omari. Like, I didn't even connect all of this. Merrimack so if you guys, I assume all of you know, like there's one bid leagues. Like that's what I played in. You either win your conference tournament or you don't go to the NCAA tournament in those one big leagues. Merrimack won that conference tournament, but because they're just a few years division one, they're not eligible for postseason play. So that's why Fairleigh Dickinson got in and they pulled the upset of Zach Eady and Purdue. Just a crazy, crazy outcome in that game. No, it's funny. I saw some debate over the weekend as far as, is this the greatest upset of all time? I tweeted about it a little bit. I'm not going to claim to be a fairly Dickerson expert or anything, but I will say that I did cover NEC basketball when I first graduated college. Uh, Robert Morris, uh, they changed conferences now, but they were the same conference as Fairleigh Dickerson, you know, back when I covered them, which was, you know, 2017 to 19 around then. And I will say that the talent gap between the Big Ten and the NEC is just massive. You're talking like a conference that's regularly top five, um, you know, in like talent level to a team, to a conference that's regularly bottom three. And I think they were the second worst this year. Then on top of that, as you said, FDU wasn't even the best team in that conference, right? Like the team, the actual best team in that conference wasn't eligible because they recently transferred in. So it's just insane. Like, I don't know what it is about Purdue. Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if it's, it's not good. It's like, not good. Matt Painter built his house in like an old grave or something or what, but but that's that's a tough upset to understand. At least for Virginia, a couple years ago, it was just like, oh, that team just got hot. Like they just got hot, and that's not a bad loss. I'm not saying this, you know, uh, uh, like okay to lose as, as a one seed, but bad for the Big Ten too. I like I I'll throw that out there. You can't have your number one team losing to 15 and 16 seeds every year. Both of those teams that you mentioned, Purdue and Virginia, and listen, one of my favorite coaches of all time is the uh, coach at Virginia. So I hate to say stuff oh, yeah. like this, but they both of them have had some bad results the last three or four seasons. Now, what Virginia has is a national championship. And so you can look past those just a little bit more whenever sandwiched in between some of those results is a national championship. This is the same thing for Bill Self at Kansas. Once he finally won a national championship, you forget about some of those other losses. You know what Matt Painter doesn't have, Omari? Matt Painter don't have a national championship to stand on you know, with these first-round exits. Here's what's intriguing to me about this Sweet 16. You have number nine seed Florida Atlantic. You have Tennessee, K-State, and seven seed Michigan State. One of those four teams will represent in the final four. And, and, we, I think know who it, and we know who that is. Kansas State Wildcats will be representing in oh, the final four. And, uh, and Omari will be buying me supper whenever I'm out in Detroit. Okay, 
But I'm just saying like, that's, that's going to be really interesting because those aren't like two mainstay teams that people are really talking about. Tennessee even lost their starting point guard just really quickly. And then I'll let you talk. I'm sure you want to talk about Michigan State. Julian Phillips for Tennessee is a guy that Pistons fans should become familiar with. He's a guy that could be there in that second round with that pick number 31, whatever it ends up being. So if you're watching those Sweet 16 games, Julian Phillips, Tennessee, especially watch him on the defensive end. Your thoughts on this East region before we move on? Yeah, no, I think there's some really fun basketball here. Uh, I would say Tennessee, you know, they played Florida Athletic. Uh, I didn't believe in the Tennessee team, you know, because I think, like when it comes to how I evaluate, you know, teams, I think will go far in the tournament. Like I saw just overall talent. I look at teams that play a fast pace or can really knock down threes or so, or just some combination of things that kind of lend well to like, you just have one game to win. Right. And actually didn't see Virginia. Actually, it's funny. I almost picked that 13 over four upset. I'm not going to get too off topic. I was picked that 13 over four upset for Virginia because they played too slow. They played too slow. And in a tournament where, like that could work during the regular season. It could work when you have a time advantage. But when you play that slowly, you're not hitting shots. It's a recipe for disaster. And I was picked it. But getting back to Tennessee, they're a defensive juggernaut. Uh, the shot making just is not quite there for them. And that is something that, you know, you just look at that team. I'm like, if you have one cold night, it's over. Because I don't care how good defensively you are. If a team gets hot, the team's going to get hot. Yeah, guys pulling up for 30. Like, this is just going to get ugly quickly uh, if a team finds that momentum. Uh, but that should be a fun game. Like, that really should be a fun game. Like, I still do not really trust Tennessee at all. So I'm looking at this like there is a good chance it could be a 9-7 <laughs> Elite 8. You know, like, obviously, I'm taking Michigan State in that. Uh, but, you know, I guess on the other side of that, and, you know, I've talked about Michigan State. If you want to talk about Kansas State a little bit, I'll happily give that to you. But when I was at Michigan State, um, I got lucky in like the year I covered men's basketball to see the newspaper was that 2015 team that was like a seven seed and they went to the final four and they were led by Denzel Valentine and Travis Trice. And uh, they were uh, get up and down the floor, get hot from three team. And I just saw a lot of similarities from that team to this team where you have it's pretty upper classman heavy. You have a lot of juniors and seniors. You have some young guys who are up and coming, but you know, probably unproven but could just really shoot the ball. I think they're the third best shooting team in college basketball this year. And that's probably not Izzo's preferred play style, but this team should really shoot the ball. Like, they become really dangerous. And I'm just like, if they get out that first weekend, I think they could beat anybody. And here we are. So I picked them to go to the Final Four in my bracket. Like, I know I'm a Michigan State guy, but I felt better about doing it this year than I have in years past just because this felt like the perfect type of seven seed for Izzo to uh, find some magic with in March. I hope they're in the national championship game so we can watch it together on that Monday at Hopcat Detroit. We record the episode. I'm sure you'd be all sorts of nervous and then we get to watch the game together there with our fans. That would be a lot of... All I'm going to say on K-State, Marcus Noel, probably not an NBA guy because he's only five foot eight. That man is balling right now. He played really, really well this weekend. Let's move on to the Midwest because I think these next two regions, we need to talk about one, there's a lot of heavy hitters in terms of teams and there's some prospects. So first you have Houston, Miami, and then Xavier versus Texas. Houston, a guy to watch for for Pistons fans is Jarris Walker. He's a forward, kind of a four-man for Houston. Marcus Sasser, their point guard, is another guy. He'd be more of like a second-round pick or if, if Troy Weaver was able to secure another later first-round pick. So in that game, you would have Jarris Walker. That would be the guy that maybe, maybe could go with that first pick in the first round. But you get that, and then you have Xavier in Texas. Xavier has a kid named Colby Jones, really good perimeter defender. He's another guy probably that 
that second round or late first round pick. So what are you thinking there? To me, that's Houston. Houston, Alabama is the matchup like that. I think you would want to see if you want to see the two best teams, quote unquote, Amari. Um, but a lot of really good teams. Miami has a lot of good players. Texas has a lot of good players. Um, some NBA draft pro- prospects there as well. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be as familiar uh, with the teams in that region. Uh, I will say Houston, like just with Jarris Walker, I mean, they were a very deserving one seed. I know a lot of team people just had confidence in to go all the way. Uh, you know, to the final four, if, if not deeper. Uh, I think that's probably the way I lean as far as that bracket. But, you know, I thought, you know, I thought Xavier played a pretty good game. Um, you know, I would say, like, I did like Penn State's ability to shoot, but I won't say they were, like, the strongest tournament team. So I'm not sure how battle-tested Texas is at this point, even though obviously a pretty high seed there. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I would, I would, I would lean toward, toward Houston in that one, but I mostly just see that one as the – uh, several Big Ten teams got massacred, and most of the teams I'm probably most familiar with in that region are no longer present. So, uh, no, Houston for sure, I think, is probably the favorite there. Okay, last region, the West. And again, I think this one, powerhouse programs, some big names. Obviously, Kansas gets knocked out by Arkansas. We talked about that. We get Arkansas-UConn with draft prospects galore on both teams. And then Gonzaga-UCLA with a bunch of big-name college basketball guys. Drew Timmy for Gonzaga. Jaime Jaquez for UCLA. Uh, This is probably the most exciting region to me because it has my favorite player. My favorite player in college basketball, hands down, not even close, is Jordan Hawkins for UConn. This guy runs off screens all over the place. He's the best shooter in the country for my money. Um, Anything, any thoughts on those teams? Arkansas, right? Nick Smith Jr., Anthony Black, Jordan Wash. They got all these, you know, NBA draft prospects as well. I think those are going to be some really fun games. Yeah, like I just like Arkansas. Like again, you look at that that backcourt with Anthony Black and Nick Smith Jr. And I do like Nick Smith's upside on defense as well. I think he competes really hard. But again, like you mentioned earlier, Nick Smith hasn't really had a good game. And, you know, they've they really just kind of have to get their wins out, um, you know, thus far, which, again, like, I just look at that region, and you have a lot of talent. Like, Gonzaga is going to be a tough out. You have a very, very motivated Drew Timmy. Like, this is probably going to be his last year. Uh, just a lot of talent up and down. Like, UCLA, uh, I mean, just a lot of talented guys there. I'm still thinking about Arkansas for this reason. I just, uh, like, I just really like their their guard play, their, their backcourt. Uh, they they like their front court. Like they're really good defensively. Um, they absolutely gave. They've given every team. Like they're, they're one of the teams I followed the closest. Like they gave Kansas, you know, some issues in the last round. I'm still sticking with them. I'm still sticking with that pick. I feel like you might disagree with them, but I like Arkansas the most. Well, I took UConn. So I didn't give him. I, I took UConn to the national championship, and I had him against Marquette, who obviously lost. So my bracket is busted and over with. And that's why I didn't want to do it. Randy made me to be a part of her family bracket challenge or whatever, and I would have got in big trouble if I didn't do it. But I didn't want to do it. I hate doing it. It makes me so mad. But so for Pistons, draft stuff, Anthony Black maybe could sneak into some top five conversation. I know he's there on some boards. Nick Smith Jr. doesn't really make sense for the Pistons, but you know maybe Jordan Walsh is a guy, you know, again, you get to the end of the first round, top of the second round. The guy I mentioned, Jordan Hawkins, I think he's more middle of the first, but if Troy Weaver gets another selection, just, again, best shooter in the country. Gonzaga has a kid, Julian Schrader. If you want to watch Gonzaga play, keep your eyes on him. Probably a second-round guy. And then UCLA has a host of guys with Edin Bona, 
um, Jaime Jaquez, Amari Bailey, just a bunch of different guys on that roster as well for you to roster. So a ton of draft prospects still in the NCAA tournament for all of our listeners that could come into play for the Pistons at the top of the first round if Weaver gets another first-round pick or even there in the second. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited for this next weekend as well. Like, hopefully these games will be good ones. They're not as often, but I think there could be some really good games. I think this is, like, my favorite weekend of the tournament because you get, like, the volume of games. It's a good mix of volume and quality, right? Like, I think that first weekend is probably the most chaotic, but second weekend is always my favorite weekend of the tournament. A lot of great draft prospects if you're a Pistons fan, and a lot of good basketball if you're a college basketball fan. So I'm also happy the Pistons on a light week, and I can sit down and watch most of these games as well. So it should be a fun weekend for college. That was hard for me as, like, I had to watch the Pistons on replay because I like I got to zone in on the March Madness stuff. I did catch every minute of the Pistons still, um, but I definitely watched that on replay and watched that college stuff live. Just one reminder, the big announcement – on Monday, April 3rd, we will be at Hopcat Detroit in Midtown, 4265 Woodward Avenue, recording live in person with an in-person audience. You guys will be there. You'll be a part of it. Wes will be walking around. We'll be taking your questions. I think essentially we'll have some topics, but we want this to be an interactive thing. Stay around, eat with us. Randy scoped out the menu. She already says it's top-notch. She's already got her She's already got her order ready, Omari. Um, so, and then I think we'll stay around before, after. We'll watch the games. We'll hang out with you guys. I'm, I'm super juiced for this, not just to see Wes in person again, see you in person again, Omari, but hopefully a bunch of our listeners will show up and be there with us as well. We're super excited to do our first live show here in a couple of weeks at Hopcat. So, you know, again, if you're a supporter of the pod, just a casual listener, uh, just just hungry and just want to do something new, uh, like absolutely come by. I'd love to come out and meet you all and uh, get Bryce back up to the bitten for, I believe, the third time since we've been doing this, right? This would be the third time. Yep. Third yeah. time. All right. Cool. Third time is going to be the best time. So Yes, sir. All right. Big thanks to our editor, Robin Chan, our executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkley Crawford. Also, shout out to Wes Davenport. We'll talk to you all next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.